Well, good evening. Good to see everybody. Welcome to our Bible study tonight as we continue looking at 1 Peter. We're in chapter 3 tonight. We'll finish 3 and start the first two verses of chapter 4 tonight. So it's good to see all of you. Hope you had a good Thanksgiving and uh, the Christmas season is upon us. Looking forward to the celebration of Christmas uh, here at First Baptist Church. Always a special time of year. Looking forward to it this year. Those of you joining us online, we welcome you tonight as well. Wherever you are and however you may be joining us, we, we welcome you also. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll get started. Father, thank you tonight for the opportunity to study your word together. Your word is life, it is power, it is truth. And Father, it's a privilege to teach your word and for us to study your word together as a church family. God, I pray tonight that you'd give us insight and wisdom Holy Spirit would be our teacher, those joining us online, the same for each one watching, that God, your presence would fill the place and you'd just help us to be the people that you want us to be. Thank you again for all that you've done. Thank you for the season of year we're coming upon, what it means to us in the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, tonight we are to the final 35 verses of 1 Peter and we're into the 12th week of our study. We're going to look at five verses tonight, five of those 35 that are left. Don't forget, uh, we have tonight and then two more Wednesdays. And then after that, we will not have Bible studies on December 20, 27, or January 3rd through the, uh, the uh, Christmas season there. It's a little more difficult, people gone. So three Wednesdays will be off. Then we'll pick back up January 10th, and we will close out First Peter uh, at the end of January. So that will wrap up our, our study there. So we will be wrapping up then at the end of January. So tonight, let's look at 1 Peter 3, 20 through chapter 4, verse 2. Whenever Peter first began writing to the Gentiles in Asia Minor who were believers in Jesus, the Roman Empire, as we know, did not understand Christianity. In fact, they had a lot of misconceptions about Christians. Um, they thought they were rather cultish. They thought Christians were kind of odd. Uh, wild rumors began to speculate about Christians, and they were accused of a lot of things that they weren't. They were accused of doing things that they didn't do, and they were totally misunderstood in the Roman Empire. Let me give you some examples. They were accused of having wild sexual orgies at their worship services. Why would they accuse them of that? Well, they would have what we know as fellowships, basically, but they called them love feasts. That's what they called it. We call them fellowships. They call them love feasts. So the outside world heard about all these love feasts going on every time the believers got together, and they accused them of being wild, sexually immoral people. They were also accused of cannibalism. I've mentioned that to you. Uh, of course, the Lord's Supper, to the outsiders who don't understand, could be conceived as cannibalism. You're drinking somebody's blood, you're eating somebody's flesh, and so they were accused of being cannibals. They were also accused of disrupting business in the Roman Empire. Why would they have accused of that? Well, whenever you became a believer, you no longer bought idols in the communities, and you no longer encouraged people to buy idols, purchase these icons and idols and so that hurt the business in the community of those who sold idols and so they were accused of being against businesses local businesses and hurting business they were also accused of incest why would early believers be accused of incest they called each other brother and sister 
and they intermarried. And so, calling each other brothers and sisters and intermarrying, accusations of incest. They were accused of being anti-family. Now today, you think of Christians as being family-oriented. Originally, they were accused of being anti-family. Why would they be accused of that? Well, they taught in the early church that if you became a Christian, your loyalty to Jesus was first, even above your family. So they were accused of being anti-family. They were also accused of being atheists. Why would Christians be accused of being atheists? Because they did not worship the Roman gods. Therefore, they were atheists. And they were accused of lack of patriotism. Now, today, you think of Christians as being the patriotic in our culture, but um, they're accused of lack of patriotism because they did not go along with the Roman government and the Roman culture and the Roman Empire. They distanced themselves from it. So they were accused of that. So a lot of accusations swirling in the Roman Empire because they did not really understand Christians. So whenever Peter begins to write this letter, he writes to them to say, how do you relate to a culture that doesn't understand you, doesn't understand what you believe, doesn't understand what you're doing, how do you relate to that kind of culture? Well, at the time Peter began writing, persecution had not become official and it had not become deadly yet. Nobody was dying for their faith yet. Mostly the persecution was rejection and being marginalized and verbal abuse, mistreatment, but nothing really as far as being severely beaten or anything or imprisoned. Well, that's all about to change. Peter wrote his letter 63 AD. If you remember history from high school, the emperor Nero took over in, uh, or actually took over in 58, but he actually started persecuting Christians in 64. So as Peter's writing, only one year away from really severe persecution. So he's trying to get them ready for it. If you remember in history, 64 AD, it all changed. Uh, Nero, who was a maniacal leader, hated Christianity with a passion. And two things were happening. He wanted, first of all, to build this palatial complex with a huge statue of himself in a brand new palace. And he wanted a place to do it. So he wanted to burn the city to give him more room to build, to build back the way he wanted it. Second of all, things were not going well in the empire. He was not a good emperor. So things were not going well. When things are not going well with the leader, you try to divert people's attention off of you. So that's what he did. Now, it's questioned today in a lot of circles whether he actually started the fire or not. Now there was recent research saying, no, he really didn't start the fire. But the earliest, Suetonius, Tychidus, some of the earliest historians who were very well respected said, yeah, he, he set the fire. So he set a fire that burned much of Rome. And then he blamed it on the Christians so he began persecuting this group that he misunderstood, number one, but he hated severely, number two. How could he blame the fire on the Christians? Simple. They refused to worship the Roman gods, and the Roman gods got angry and started burning down the city. It's the Christians' fault because they wouldn't appease the gods. So, he blamed the fire on the Christians. In 64 AD, one year after Peter wrote, 
persecution ramped up severely. Many Christians were beaten. Many of these believers were imprisoned. Many of them were killed for their faith. Peter was one that was killed by Nero. Paul was killed by Nero. As I mentioned to you a couple of weeks now, he would, he would uh, dip Christians in, in tar, tie them to a pole, set them afire, put them, line them around his garden, so he'd have garden parties at night. They literally would, burning Christians would provide the fire for his garden parties. He would pit Christians against animals publicly and have these big public displays where Christians would be ripped apart by wild animals. He would burn them at the stake. And uh, so persecution really ramped up. It was so severe, in fact, that later on, 90 AD, believers, when hearing John write about the Antichrist, they thought it might have been Nero because he was so much, had so much hatred for Christians and did so much to persecute them. So Peter's writing, he starts to tell them, folks, you got to get ready. You are about to suffer. And I'm not just talking about being marginalized or mistreated or verbally abused. It's going to get bad, so bad that your model and your example is going to be Christ. He suffered, did good for suffering, uh, did good and suffered for it, was crucified, and he's going to be your model. So many of you, too, must give your life. So starting in chapter 3, verse 8, he switches his tune and he starts writing about persecution that's starting to really ramp up. Now, let's go to letter A on your outline, revisiting Jesus' work. Two weeks ago, before we left, and tonight's is kind of confusing. I hope not to bring more confusion to you. I hope to hope, hopefully bring some insight to you, but, but uh, we'll, we'll see at the end whether that happened or not, because it is kind of a confusing passage. Two Wednesdays ago, the last time we met, uh, Jesus' work started verse 18. I want to go back there because that's where he's, his line of train of thought begins. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. In that one verse is the shortest and one of the simplest verses on the atonement of Jesus, and one of the richest as well. Jesus, he said, is your ultimate example of suffering. And within this next year, you're going to face it. Your example when you do is Jesus. He suffered so that he might bring us to God. And we saw two weeks ago that the word bring us to God, prosago, in Greek literally means access to an audience with the king. So Jesus' death allowed you and me to have access to God the Father when we can stand before him then in judgment based on the righteousness of Jesus. Then let's go to verse 19. You remember we talked about this controversial passage. In which he, talking about Jesus, went... And proclaim to the spirits in prison. Now, if you remember from a couple of weeks ago, we talked about that. The word Jesus went there is interesting because we're going to see tonight the same word is used. In verse 19, the word porio is Greek, in Greek is used, which literally means to cross over, to go to the other side. So it tells us Jesus went to the other side, crossed over, which is usually a euphemism for death. And he went and descended and preached to the spirits in prison. Now, we kind of toss that around. What on earth is going on? Jesus preaching between the crucifixion on Friday and his resurrection on Sunday. 
that, that three-day period in there, he, he went and preached in hell? Was he trying to, was he doing missionary work? Was he trying to get converts? And we saw that that's not what was taking place. We saw two weeks ago that there were 15 different words in the Greek language in the New Testament for, the, for preach. One of them is caruso, which means to herald, or just make a declaration. Uh, we talked about the other words that were used, the katalego, which is to declare, or euangelia, which we get for evangelism, uh, kaleo, which means to call out, and uh, dialegami, which means to reason. A lot of different words for preaching, but the word used here is the word caruso, meaning to herald. So he went and he didn't preach for an, a decision, he just went to make a declaration. His declaration was, in hell, we assume that's what happened, was that he was preaching to those in hell to let them know that, that he has won the victory even over death and hell itself. Now, there were several theories we talked about, about what that means, preaching in prison. We, to the spirits in prison, we saw that some people believe that he was preaching to Noah's day, because we're going to see in verse 20 in just a moment, he referenced Noah. So, some say that he was preaching to those people in Noah's day that died in the flood. Well, maybe. Uh, others say, you know, he was preaching to the babies of Noah's day because they didn't have a chance to choose right or wrong yet. Well, probably not. That's, that's, there's not any kind of evidence anywhere for that. Some say he was preaching through Noah, that Jesus was actually there in the New Te Old Testament preaching through Noah, that as Noah preached, it was Christ preaching through him. Maybe that's what he meant. Or it could mean that he was actually proclaiming victory to those in hell, to the demons, and to those in hell, that he had won victory over death and hell. So we don't really know for certain. Probably the last one explanation is probably the closest to the grammatical uh, structure. So 19 says he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Now we come to tonight's passage verse, a letter B on your outline, in the days of Noah. But I wanted to give you that background and not just start in verse 20, because verse 20 begins in the middle of a sentence. So I wanted to explain the sentence to you first. So let's go to verse 20. Because they formerly did not obey God, the spirits in prison. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. We know the story of Noah. We know what happened. God waited patiently, gave them a chance to repent for 120 years. And then finally after that, God sent the flood in Noah's day. He waited patiently for them to return, to, to uh, repent. And God is patient with people today. You may say, why doesn't God just wipe them off the face of the earth? They're blasphemers. They, well, he's being patient. He's patient with us. Many of you, many of you weren't saved till later in life. He's patient with you. And he's patient with me. So God's patience allows people to be saved. And that's what he was talking about in verse 20. Only eight people escaped. Who would that be? Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives. For a total of eight people. They're the ones that got in the ark. They're the ones that made it safely through the water. They're bobbing along in the ark on the water. And then the rest of everybody drowned and they died. So only a relatively few people escaped the judgment. Only eight. And Jesus says whenever, of course, narrow is the way and few there be that find it, they find the road to life. So there will be only few that saved as well 
at the final judgment, relatively few. So he's talking in verse 20 about the patience God has waiting on people. But then at the end of verse 20, Peter says something that kind of takes an odd turn for us. So I want us to look at that. Verse 20, eight persons, look at the very last phrase, which were brought safely through the water. Now, we're thinking they're in the ark, right? And they're bobbing along on the water. They're safe. Everyone else drowned. But now, verse 21, he takes a turn toward water being baptism. So, does he teach baptism saves you? Well, let's look at verse 21. In fact, let her see on your outline. How does baptism correspond, verses 21 and 22? Look at verse 21. Baptism which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. All right, hold on a second now. Is he teaching that baptism saves you? Now, some thoughts, and let's look at the passage. To me, first of all, I find it interesting that Peter used the analogy of water to describe judgment rather than fire. Water was, of course, Noah in his day. Fire would be Sodom and Gomorrah. So he uses the analogy of water rather than fire for judgment. Another thing to remember right up front is one of the first hermeneutical principles. Hermeneutics is biblical interpretation. How do you interpret the Bible? One of the first principles that we teach in hermeneutics class, one of the first biblical principles of interpretation is every passage needs to be interpreted in light of the entire Bible. So interpret every passage in light of other passages. So if this passage seems to be teaching, baptism saves you, then let's look at other passages. Is that taught in the rest of Scripture? No. Mark 16, vague reference. Outside of that, baptism saving you is not taught in Scripture. So, the first hermeneutical principle you look at, you're going, no, it is not a passage that is backed up in the rest of the Bible. So, what on earth was he talking about? Passages in the Bible, such as Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you're saved through faith, not, a, not, not of works. So, lest anyone should boast, so it's clear in Ephesians 2, salvation is by grace through faith alone in Jesus, without any works... So baptism would be a work for your own salvation. Makes it clear baptism does not save you. Many people who believe that baptism does save you, there are groups out there that believe that, will refer to this verse. 1 Peter 3.21, they say, tells us baptism saves us. So was Peter really trying to teach that baptism is required for salvation? If so... He would have been contradicting 
many of the verses in Scripture. For example, I've mentioned to you Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. But he also would be contradicting Acts 10, where it's very clear, Cornelius and his household obviously were saved before baptism. They were baptized, but they were saved before then. Romans 8, 9, Paul says, you must have the Spirit of God to be His. He didn't say anything about baptism. Ephesians 1.13 talks about the believer, once you believe you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. doesn't say believed and baptized or baptized and sealed. It says you believe and then you're sealed. 1 John 3.24, those that abide in Him has God's Spirit. doesn't say anything about baptism. So other passages don't seem to teach this. Now, some people believe that this verse proves infant baptism. It's called pedo-baptism, in baptizing of infants. Some people believe this passage teaches this. For example, Lutherans believe infant baptism is taught in this verse and that whenever you baptize a baby that guarantees their salvation until they are old enough to make a decision on their own. So they believe when you baptize them, a baby, they, their parents' faith is good for them until they get old enough to choose Christ for themselves, which is usually around 12 years old. They have confirmation classes beginning around 12. By the way, Roman Catholic Church believes the same. They believe that in infant baptism, the Lord bestows on the child a, quote, good conscience toward God. End quote. Look at the verse, 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Christ Jesus. So that good conscience, they believe a bab- child's baptized as a baby, and that gives them a good conscience toward God until they can go through confirmation and they are guaranteed from their heaven because of their parents' faith. You say, well, that's kind of odd. Well, they... They see a parallel, Roman Catholics, Presbyterians, and Lutherans, all three, see a parallel here with circumcision in the Old Testament. Circumcision was a sign, and so is a baby was circumcised. They couldn't choose faith, but it was a sign until they could choose faith to be monotheistic and, 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 and follow the Lord. And so that they see baptism as the same as circumcision the parallel one problem i see is this nowhere in scripture is baptism a condition to be saved in fact it warns us against adding anything to faith for salvation circumcision didn't save children under the old covenant any more than baptism saves them under the new covenant so as the water floated noah's ark Save the ones and kept them from drowning, not that baptism cleanses you from defilement, either physically or spiritually, but by announcing publicly that a person has placed their faith in Jesus. It appears baptism saves us from the consequences of disbelieving God and siding with the world. As Constable says, it is a symbol that a person has made a break with their past life and taken a stand with Jesus. Peter Davids was one of the best scholars on James, book of James, and First and Second Peter both. And he says, 
quote, they have experienced salvation in the same way Noah did, namely by passing through the water safely, the water of baptism. Now, water in Noah's day was a passage from the old to the new. Baptism is a passage for us. It's a symbol of the old now becoming new. The old has been buried and the new has been raised. So Peter appears to be referring to what baptism represents. Appears to be connecting baptism with belief. It's not getting wet that saves us. It is the appeal to God for a clean conscience, which is signified by baptism that saves us. The appeal to God comes first, belief, and then public identity comes second. But notice the phrase here in verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this. Look at the phrase which corresponds for a moment. The word corresponds in the Greek language is the word antitupon. We get the English word antitype from it. So an antitype was something that's the opposite of a type. This is a type or represents something, and the antitype represents the opposite. One of the few places, there aren't many antitypes in the Bible. There are some. For example, if you remember the bronze serpent that was held up in the wilderness, uh, and everyone that looked at it was saved from the snake bites in the, in the Old Testament, the antitype is made in the New Testament. Jesus is like the bronze serpent. If you look to him, you're saved. That's, that's a type antitype. Uh, another one is Jonah and Jesus. Jonah was buried in the belly of the whale or the great fish for three days, and Jesus buried in the ground for three days. And so that type, anti-type, is made. You see several of these, but not a lot of them. It appears here he is using a type of baptism. Not that baptism saves you, but baptism is a type or an anti-type because he uses the word anti-tupon. So it appears Peter is only making a likeness or a representation. Well, it's kind of like baptism, but he's not saying that baptism is an exact saving faith. So just the word Peter uses makes you think he's not thinking of baptism that saves you. Now, Peter points in his comments about baptism appears to be this. In water baptism, his readers had made a public profession of faith in their community and that immediately led to the persecution. Remember, this is in the context of persecution. So, they trusted Christ, baptized, and immediately they were by the Roman government. That's an empire that misunderstands them. Immediately you're identified with somebody who's being misunderstood. However, by that act of baptism, it testified also to the ultimate victory of Jesus, as he said as well. Now, here's another thought. Baptism in Peter's day was a little different than it is today here with us in this way. Usually in Peter's day, the moment you confessed Christ, you were baptized immediately. As soon as you found water. Immediate. Now today, people in Baptist churches get saved and they're baptized a month later or two months later or six months later or a year later. Or some of you may have been saved and still not baptized. You've gone years. That was not the biblical example. It's not the biblical model. Ethiopian eunuch, what hinders me from getting baptized? Nothing. There's water right here. Let's do it. You immediately were baptized. 
And as I talked about a few weeks ago, sometimes naked. They did naked baptisms up to the second century because it was symbolic. You took off your old clothes. You took off your old way of life. And you entered baptism and you had a new way of life. So the thought of getting saved here and baptized months later had no biblical construct to it. They were baptized immediately. So, baptism was so closely tied to your event of being saved, sometimes they just considered it the same thing. Now, it's not a theological teaching, but sometimes they viewed the events as synonymous. That's to keep in mind as well. I'm not saying it's what Peter's talking about. I'm just saying think of the culture into which he's writing. Sometimes your salvation, confession, and your baptism, almost simultaneous. So, now let's go to the last phrase, verse 2, verse 21. And this is how we know that Peter was not talking about baptism saving you. Let's read it again, verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Look at the next phrase. Not as removal of dirt from the body but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Peter was careful to point out it isn't actually the water that cleanses you. It's not actually the water that gets the dirt off of you. It is symbolic. Now, a lot of people today still believe baptism cleanses you. I talk to people all the time. I've talked to just in the last few weeks. Pastor, I want to be baptized. Why? I need to be clean. Nothing about that cleanses you. And I tell them that. I say, this is the city of Garland Water. There's nothing holy about it. If you go in dirty, you're going to come out dirty. It's symbolic. And that's what Peter said. It's not the removal of dirt from your body. But for some reason, even today, people think baptism cleanses you. It does not. Jesus' blood cleanses you. And the baptism is a picture, a symbol of that cleansing. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said as he preached on this passage, verse 21. Noah was not saved by the world's being gradually reformed and restored to its primitive innocence. But a sentence of condemnation was pronounced and death, burial, and resurrection ensued. Noah must go into the ark and become dead to the world. The floods must descend from heaven and rise upward from their secret fountains beneath the earth. The ark must be submerged with many waters. Here was burial. And then after a time... Noah and his family came out to a totally new world of resurrection life. That's the same picture of baptism. You are buried. The symbol of your judgment's gone and raised to a newness, to walk in newness of life, to a resurrection life. Verse 22. Talking about Jesus. He who has gone into heaven is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to to him. So Peter tells us Jesus' ultimate victory through the resurrection, despite his suffering, 
should be encouragement to anybody who's going to suffer within the next year. We see the completeness of Jesus' work and his subsequent exaltation. So folks, in the next year, if Nero comes after you, you be just as faithful in your suffering as Jesus was in his suffering. And you too, even if you die, will be exalted in heaven with him. You suffer for doing good, and you inherit a blessing. Now look at the phrase, who has gone into heaven. The word gone is the exact same word in verse 19 for went. Remember what went meant in, in verse 19? Porio is the Greek word. It means to descend into the depths, preach to the spirits in prison. Now verse 22, gone means ascend. Whenever he descended, nobody saw it. Whenever he ascended, they witnessed it. Mount of Olives until he got into a cloud and was gone. Same word is used. Both means mean to cross over and go to the other side. So, as a summary, what we looked at in the end of verse three, chapter 3, verse 18 describes the saving work of Jesus, 19 describes him proclaiming victory, 20 describes how they were to be faithful just as Noah was faithful, 21 uses the anti-type of baptism to describe how they will be delivered from persecution, just as Noah's family was. And verse 22 reminds us of the ultimate vindication and destiny of believers. Hopefully that wasn't too confusing, and hopefully it's more enlightening. Let's go to chapter 4, and then we'll close. Two verses there. Number, or rather letter D on your outline, the same way, way of thinking. Chapter 4, verse 1. Since, therefore, therefore connects chapter 3 and chapter 4 together. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Let's look at those two verses and we'll close. Notice that therefore connects the chapter to this chapter, so there's a tie-in there. Therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, so you're going to be suffering in the next, within the next year. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. The Greek word for arm yourselves is a military term. Get your weapons. Get your equipment. Be ready for battle. Grab your arms, be ready for battle. So what arms do you have when you're persecuted? Your thinking. Your weapons are your way of thinking. Now, he wasn't talking about physical weapons because Peter tried that. Remember? He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is praying. Roman soldiers are marching to arrest him, and Peter draws out the sword. He tried that. didn't work. He's not talking about pulling out your sword. But he is using a term, a military term, that means to arm yourself. But you arm yourself with the way you think. Folks, have you ever thought that one of our greatest weapons in the culture that we live that doesn't understand Christianity, that kind of makes fun of us and gets angry at us for believing this, have you ever thought that one of our greatest weapons... It's the way we think. Our mindset. Have you ever thought that has been a great weapon? 
It is. They're a year from persecution, severe, and your weapon is your way of thinking. You think like Christ, and that's your greatest weapon. Now, how's that a weapon? He suffered, knowing the death was coming, and was faithful. This group here, they didn't know it was coming. He's telling them in advance, but it's getting close, guys. It's getting real close. So you be faithful. You think like Jesus thought. You be faithful in the suffering. God will exalt you. There are some theologians, Gordon Selwyn was one, who believes that verse 1 of chapter 4 is the, is the doctrinal keystone of the entire book. That the entire book can be summarized in this one command. You arm yourselves and be ready to think like Jesus. With the same intent. Then he says, with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. First of all, the word flesh there is not a reference to carnal living. Whenever Paul wrote about sarks or flesh, he, he, he meant it to be like carnal living. In other words, you're a believer, but you're living like the world. That, that's not how Peter intended it. In fact, most Jews didn't, believe, didn't think of flesh in that way. This was more of a reference to your moral lifestyle here on earth. This, the Jewish concept of flesh was human existence. We're weak, we're fallen, we're subject to pain and death. Just merely being human is how most people interpret flesh. And that's how Peter does as well, different than how Paul interpreted it. But look what he says. If you've suffered in the flesh, you have ceased from sin. Time out. One more controversy before we close. Does this mean once you're saved... You never sin again. Do you know there are groups that believe that? Pentecostals. A lot of Pentecostals today believe in what the doctrine of what's called sinless perfection. Once you're saved, you're perfect. You never sin again. So if, you, if you're sinning, proof you're not saved. Is Peter teaching a sinless perfection? Or, as Roman Catholics believe, they believe this passage teaches purgatory. Chapter 4, verse 1. They believe teaches purgatory. So how do they believe that? But think about it. After you suffer, you're free from sin. What does purgatory teach? You go to this intermediate place to work off all of your sins. You suffer, you suffer, but eventually you've worked them all off and you're free from sin. So... Roman Catholics believe this is a doctrine of purgatory. And Roman and uh, Pentecostals, some others believe, not all Pentecostals, but some, Nazarenes especially, proof of a doctrine of sinless perfection. However, Peter uses the aorist participle, which of, of pathon, suffer, which means has suffered. Usually that's an antecedent in time, the main verb which here is in the perfect tense, 
Perpentai, which means has ceased. So suffering precedes ceasing. Peter apparently meant that suffering with Christ should lead to a more holy life. So, basically he's saying you should put sins behind you and live a clean life just as Jesus lived a clean life. Because if Jesus was the example, he didn't cease from sin. He never sinned to begin with. So he couldn't be talking about Christ sinning as being the example. The old life that we have, dominated by sin, has been usurped once we're saved. Sin no longer is the dominating force of your life. Do you sin? Yes. Do you give into the flesh at times? Yes. But the new motive for living is not what the flesh desires, but what God desires. And that's what he said in verse 2. So as you no longer live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Warren Wiersbe says, quote, we may not always understand what God is doing, but we know that what He is doing is best. We do not live on explanations. We live on promises. He's right. Now, one more thing and I'll close. I've been saying that for like 10 minutes, haven't I? Okay, we're closing this time. Sometimes I like to read like a paraphrase, a passage that's unclear sometimes. Just to kind of get a perspective, this is from the message. Just a perspective, verses 19 through 22. So now that we've studied it, just listen to a paraphrase of what we just studied. He went and proclaimed God's salvation to earlier generations who ended up in the prison of judgment because they wouldn't listen. You know, even though God waited patiently all the days that Noah built his ship, only a few were saved eight to be exact, saved from the water, by the water. The waters of baptism do that for you, not by washing away dirt from your skin, but by, but by presenting you through Jesus' resurrection before God with a clear conscience. Jesus has the last word on everything and everyone, from angels to armies, and right now, he's standing right alongside God. And what he says goes. With that, we'll close. Pick up chapter 4, verse 3, next Wednesday night. Father, thank you tonight for the study of your word together, for what you teach us from your word. God, help us to not only just know to study your word in our heads, but help us to put it into our hearts that whenever we walk with you during the day and during the week, that we actually live out the precepts we've been taught. Lord, we don't know if judgment's coming for us as those in Peter's day didn't know what judgment looked like only a year away for them. We don't either. But Father, I pray that in the culture in which we live, we will arm ourselves for battle with our minds, thinking the same way Jesus thought. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you Sunday.